Welcome to the Education Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsor, Limmer Education, we can make science more accessible and understandable. Okay, welcome everyone to the January 2023 Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum, Education Research Journal Club. Uh, PCRF promotes research literacy to advance the science of EMS educational research. So here with the PCRF Journal Club, we take a closer look at some of the latest research happening in medical education. A great big thank you to Limmer Education for sponsoring these podcasts so we can bring you the best of science in education. I'm Megan Corey, and I am here with Katie O'Connor and Alex Trembley. We got Kim McKenna, we've got Mike Caduce, and we'll have Dr. Bill Toon joining us in a minute here. And today we've got a really important discussion happening. Um, we're going to discuss an article that was published in the Internet Journal of Allied Health Sciences and Practice. This is a study out of New Zealand. It was just published just this month, January 2023, and it's entitled Speaking Up in Healthcare, an Exploration of the New Graduate Workforce. So thank you everyone for joining us today. We're going to begin. We want to remind you, you can use the chat feature. Uh, we can monitor those uh, comments, questions. Uh, you can put a question if you have something for the panelists in the Q&A uh, area. And remember that uh, you can quote, tag, share, if you hear something that you really like, you want to share it, um, hashtag EMS research and at PCRF at UCLA um, and our Facebook site. And you can also tag our sponsor, Limmer Education. So let's begin. Um, and remember also, too, that if you miss any of these uh, journal clubs, we do have a YouTube channel. So you can go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash at PCRF at UCLA, and you can find not only the playlist for this webinar, but for the clinical. And also recently we've had a few on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Those will be posted as well on our uh, playlist and subscribe. Um, so that way you get notified when we have something uh, coming up. Also, before we get into this article, just a real quick reminder, we're going to do this each month. Remember, remember that June 30th, 2023 is the abstract uh, submission deadline for the 2023 call for abstracts. And this, again, is the one that you can take your education research um, or data and, and start thinking about some of the questions that you might have, even in your own program. And, uh, you know, generate that into a small study and get an abstract in by June 30th, 2023. Uh, for possibly a poster or an oral presentation at one of the upcoming conferences. So we'll have more on that each month uh, as we go, but just a reminder out there because June 30th comes fast and you might want to think about those research questions right now. All right, so let's go back to what this, uh, what we're looking at today. Uh, this study, uh, so these day days it got, does seem like everyone in healthcare is new, um, there are so many new graduates out there in the workforce and certainly in EMS, uh, but in all areas uh, of healthcare, uh, we have a tendency, you know, we expect them to be at baseline level of competency. And part of that is to be armed with the ability to uh, use their voice or speak out uh, with the ability to recognize safety and ethical issues and speak up on behalf of their patients and uh, of themselves. 
but research from the medical and nursing literature shows that there are common barriers to speaking up among practicing healthcare professionals, things like power, hierarchy, team culture, and risk. Uh, risk is an interesting one because it's not just risk to the patient, it's risk to themselves and not just health risk, but things like interpersonal relationships. So this team of New Zealand researchers were interested in allied health specifically and new graduates of allied health programs. By new graduates, we're talking about those who have who are in the workforce for uh, less than two years. And you'll see in the table of participants, it's far less than that in, in some ways or in some places, less than more like around the one year mark. And initially, this group did a scoping review of the literature uh, of over a 10-year period from 2009 to 2019, and they found 76 papers and only five included allied health participants, and none of them looked at allied health new graduates. So they launched what, what is called an exploratory study. So those of you who are looking for something to research, um, you know, you find a gap in the literature like this, and then one of the first things that's done is theory development around it or the use of existing theory to guide an exploratory research project, which is what this is. So it's it's um, a qualitative piece and it's exploratory. So they really wanted to aim to, and you see the research aims here, to explore how new grads, and they're calling them NGs all throughout the paper, new grads in allied health perceive speaking up about patient safety issues and quality improvement. And then the second thing is, what are the influences um, on speaking up behaviors? I kind of like the, that they said influences. So it was positive and negative. What made them more likely to? What made them less likely to uh, speak up? So this involved, uh, when it comes to the methods, it involved um, allied health. And, and this, there are no EMS workers in this one, but there's allied health of different types. And you'll see this in the, um, this is again in New Zealand, not a lot of, of um, participants. It's a qualitative study, and, and many of our panelists here have done qualitative research. Uh, it's painstaking. And if you're doing something like this, where they choose to do focus groups instead of interviews of individuals, uh, focus groups, It's a, it, there are groups. And actually, maybe I can pull in um, Alex and Kim. You've done some qualitative research. Both of you have done qualitative research. Um, just from a research perspective, if you're going to do an exploration of something um, why would you, when would you say, I want to do individual interviews of people or serve or surveys, actually surveys is, is quantitative a lot of times because we ask them to categorize things unless they're going to do free text versus a focus group. Yeah. So first of all, I think you probably want to do qualitative interviews when you're really looking to punish yourself as a researcher. <laughs> um, but so Interviews are a lot more personal, uh, especially in healthcare workers. If you put 10 new grads in a room, right, and you ask all of them how things have been going and one person says good, the person that's going to say not good is going to be a lot less apt to speak up. Doing those one-on-one -on -one interviews gives those people a much more intimate opportunity to, to give their thoughts. And remember, whether you're doing a focus group, individual interviews, or even uh, the the qual the qual qualitative excuse me parts of a survey like in Qualtrics where you have a big text box, what you're looking for is to develop themes. So Kim might say, "I feel uncomfortable talking to a nurse with ten years of experience," and I might say, "I feel uncomfortable talking to a senior nurse." The theme is still the same. If it's somebody with more experience than what I deem my professional acumen to be at, 
I'm uncomfortable. So you're going to develop a lot of the same ideas with the intimacy to the individual respondent that gives them more of the opportunity to respond. Great. Thanks. Kim, you have something to add? I don't think I could say it any better than than what Alex did. I, I would say on the flip side, when you do your focus group, then um, that allows people to sort of build off of what the other people have said. And it kind of triggers like things that they're like, oh, dang, I forgot about that. Yeah, that was really an issue. And so um, that tends to just sort of have a little bit more free flow of, of uh, ideas and, and um, those kinds of things. So. Yeah, the one time that I did a focus group, I noticed that they, uh, the participants would think someone would think of something like, oh, yeah, I think this and then several hours ago, you know what, I never thought of that. That's so true. And so all of a sudden you get a theme that maybe a few others didn't think of and wouldn't have thought of by themselves. Or maybe if, if we've all been interviewed later on, you go, I should have said that. I forgot to tell them this. And that might have been a vital piece of data. And then I, I don't know if Mike or Katie have experience uh, or Bill with qualitative research or if you had anything to add about the the way that they did the exploration in terms of choosing focus groups, I, especially I, on I, such a sensitive topic. <clears throat> I was just going to comment on the challenge with focus groups, though, sometimes is you must have really a good moderator mm. to prevent one individual from capturing everything and not allowing the wallflowers to participate at all. So there is an art to getting a focus group to get you the information out that you want. So just getting a group of people together and, and listening to them talk doesn't necessarily mean it's a, an effective focus group for you. Just a word of caution. Yeah, great point. I was just going to say, I did a, um, in a qualitative class, uh, like eight years ago or whatever, I did um, a project on what is the experience of the new paramedic graduate. And uh, one of the things that emerged under one of the themes was a fear of looking foolish and the desire to fit in were two really important things for the new grad. And so, you know, if you, when you have a big focus group, again, they don't want to look foolish. And so just like Alex said, and so I think that's just sort of uh, exacerbated when you're a new grad, you're really, you're really sort of walking on eggshells the whole time. Mm -hmm. And that actually is going to come up here, I think too, uh, that, that, you know, when, the, when there's comments, you'll see uh, later on, on feeling incompetent, feeling like you want to demonstrate, you want to show that you're, you don't want to be viewed as incompetent. So, um, so this was three tertiary uh, hospitals where they drew their participants from and actually they were invited. So these are recruited participants. So they're willing and, and I'm sure the recruitment material says something about, uh, you know, what they're what the study is about. So these are people willing also to speak out about speaking out. So uh, so that's part of it. And then you see the breakdown. This is in New Zealand. So you see the breakdown of uh, the different ethnic groups uh, in New Zealand. Again, small groups, though, and, and they do mention that that is, of course, the, a major limitation of the study is we're talking about a very small group. Now, in qualitative research, we do get small groups because we're not after the large, you know, volumes of, of numbers and, and data that you get in quantitative, and we're not after p-values and statistical significance. Uh, we're looking at the richness we're looking at. And so anytime you're questioning and you're, if you're exploring like this, exploring and theory development is always great to start with a qualitative or mixed methods kind of methodology, I think. Um, but we have two focus groups. We have one that was uh, five uh, participants and the other only two. And COVID interfered with that. They did say that that interfered with it. They ended up having to do these 
focus groups by Zoom, which is another limitation. We don't know whether that, you know, the ability to pick up on a nonverbal cues and all of these things influences somebody's response. So um, these were, again, from three tertiary hospitals, and these are seven total participants. So a very small study. And then if you look at the professional discipline, you can see the allied health workers that were in this. So we have audiology and dietitians, and then we have a social worker. Um, they, they did ask for, or they did have, they had no participants in the area of occupational therapy and physiotherapy. And uh, they did have a couple of speech and language therapists uh, in the second focus group. So actually two up from the same discipline. So all of those are going to be, you know, questions. Again, this is a, an exploration, uh, but it really, it's very thoughtful. The other thing to think about is every participant here was female. So I'm not sure, I, I, you know, again, an exploration is step one. I, I'm certain they would, if, if in the best world, um, increase the amount of, uh, you know, uh, diversity among the gender and among uh, the ethnic groups as well uh, to make sure that you're getting and, and among the disciplines. But you could select a lot of what they're doing in here and and use it in your own discipline and, and uh, take from this. So we're going to uh, look a little deeper than this. So we have the country of study is New Zealand. The years of graduation were 2018 and 2019. Um, you know, and there's pretty, uh, most of them are from 2018. The number of years working is pretty split, less than a year uh, versus uh, there's three less than a year and uh, four who had one to two years of experience in one of these uh, tertiary hospitals. So this, what they did was they were focus groups. So they had these, um, you know, focus group discussions. They didn't uh, show us here, although they did have an, an uh, appendix on some of the uh, the guidelines that they use. They they um, cited the Joanna Briggs guidelines. And I actually had to look that up. Did you, I don't know if you all were familiar with the Joanna Briggs Institute, which is an international organization that develops evidence-based practice and guidelines, but uh, it's a great website, by the way, um, going to look at that. But I, I don't know if others were familiar with it, but they used guidelines to actually um, guide their theory or their um, reflexive thematic analysis and also uh, just the the entire exploratory uh, study itself. Uh, let's see, they use Zoom transcription function um, to transcribe and then reviewed just like they do. And they actually have a really good detailed chart here on their analysis steps. Um, I like this because you could, if you were thinking about doing qualitative research and you, you know, if you're uh, at first, if you're not familiar with it and you think, okay, well, we just sit down with focus groups and we listen and we say, oh, every, you know, five out of seven people said this, or, you know, we tend to fall into this quantitative mode. And it's really more um, about trying to pull out themes, not necessarily from words, but from um, the way that they're put together. And so here we can see their analysis steps is they took there were notes that were taken by a primary researcher during the throughout the focus groups. Um, they had the transcripts too. The notes taken by the by the researcher, um, you know, on thoughts after the focus group related to ideas, topics, and emerging thoughts on theory development specifically. Then this um, step immersion in the data. That's the transcripts, and again, that's that probably brings you 
a little angst, um, Alex, and <laughs> when you that number three, when yeah. you, you know, transcripts. I mean, I know I audio taped a lot of interviews and I used to walk through the grocery store and walk my dogs and everything, listening to the audio tapes before I transcribed them. And it, you're just embedded in it. Yeah, I saw Greg Fries. Thanks for your comment about using Zoom transcription. All of the big ones transcribe now, which I think is awesome. Teams, uh, et cetera. One of the things that's going to make qualitative research very different in the next couple of years is natural language processing. So using an artificial intelligence program to do natural language processing on either transcribed documents or uh, written interview questions. And, and that's why, so this is a really small study, as we talked about, seven people is small, right? Uh, but we talked about ECMO studies early on when with the U of M ECMO program that were five patients. And so to talk in a qualitative capacity, seven is not is not bad. That's a really great structure to start, right? Is is once it's in a document, natural language processing with your local university that's working with AI is a huge difference maker. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, natural language processing. Kim, did you have something to add? I was just going to say, I, I've used Otter before also to transcribe from Zoom and it works really terrific. But, you know, going back to what you said earlier about, you know, if you're going to be a qualitative researcher, you're going to have to put the time in because the project we just finished, we did, I think, uh, nine focus groups with, you know, ranging from three to six people. And so then you're talking about hours and hours just to go through it the first time, much less than once you go through and you start coding and then you go and, and you start trying to identify your themes. It takes forever. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Katie, for putting in the link to in, in the chat. There is a link to the critical appraisal tools at that Joanna Briggs uh, Institute uh, that they cite. So um, we can check that out. So the the immersion in the data is where we're at now. Then they're going to code and, and coding is another element. Um, a, a lot of people might get at first the impression that there are programs that code for you and that it really isn't the case, or at least when I was doing qualitative research, unless something has changed, natural language processing helps um, a little bit with that. But um, a lot of times these coding programs help you to sort, not, uh, they don't do it for you. The AI um, element of it's going to be interesting comparing, you know, say uh, the, the five of us or six of us evaluating codes versus uh, you know, natural language processing, that, that'll that be an interesting, and I'm sure somebody's, somebody's probably already done that study or is continuously looking at something like that. Which one is, is what kind of different themes do you pull from, from both of those? Uh, it certainly takes the work out, out of it, um, or at least frees up some time for different work. So then the other step I loved was number five, time away from the data to allow for further processing of analysis. So, um, I, and I'm not sure how that worked or, you know, how they structured that, but I, I, I thought that was interesting. And then another round of coding with revisions and edits. And then uh, again, they've got a team of researchers. It's not one person, um, sub themes and further time away, thinking over the themes and sub themes, relating it to theory, feedback from other research members. I mean, this is, I, I, I really appreciated this level of detail in this because um, you could, you know, maybe this goes, maybe this is found in the critical appraisal tools as a process you know, in analysis step or in some other reference. Um, I, I didn't double check in the uh, paper whether this is actually a standard um, that's used or, or one that's 
but but I thought it was uh, really great for them to replicate or to show us this. The process was repeated with the second focus group. So then they did the same thing with the second focus group. And it looks like they did it um, first with one focus group and then uh, the next one was um, time-wise. So let's get to the themes. And this is where I want to hear from everybody because you know we've got a really great team here. We've got Mike Caduce, who's from EMT, who's the EMT director. We've got Katie O'Connor, who does simulation. And I'm really curious, really, really curious about uh, the scaffolding piece in this and, and what Katie has to think about it. We've got Bill, who's got you know decades of experience. Um, we've got Alex in the continuing education, hiring new new grad world all the time, and Kim, who's pretty much got it all. <laughs> did so, you just call me old? I did. Okay, just <laughs> without <checking>. pause. <laughs> you live in Arizona. I don't think you're probably young, actually. <laughs> um, Okay, so table three is the first uh, results table and you, you see the themes. Advocacy drives speaking up, then there's scaffolding. You know, what, what are the things that, that are, um, and, and they show some illustrative quotes and then the two different uh, sub themes that come from the focus groups that were in common. And I mean, uh, in yeah, there. go ahead. Based on my just, uh, timeline here. The the thing that really stuck out to me is the idea of making scaffolding, uh, which is the second theme here, and there's a lot of sub-themes to it. And that's the idea that it's okay to speak up, right? The idea that it's okay to say, hey, I have a concern about this. Stop the line has been really prevalent, especially in the operating room. It's worked its way out into other parts of healthcare that anybody should feel empowered to say, hey, wait a minute, I think something's not right here. And that has to happen in, in EMS too. That has to happen on the ambulance. The challenge is, is one, you can write a sign that says this is a free space. You, you know, you can feel welcome to speak up here, but until you actually put in the practice of saying, hey, this person came forward with a concern and we dealt with it and we did everything we, there's always gonna be a little awkwardness, but we, we did everything we could to make them feel welcome and accepted until it actually happens for people. It's not going to just work with a banner. It's not going to work with just a slogan. And the biggest challenge from an EMS perspective in my mind is that there's only two people, right? So if I'm working with Megan and I say, hey, Megan, I think something's not right there, right here, there's nobody, there's no third person. We can't call Katie on the phone and say, hey, what do you think? We have to make our decision in that moment. And so where this becomes critical, where the scaffolding in EMS is so critical is creating the culture in your senior employees and your FTOs and your student preceptors that start that early, right? And that address the people that aren't willing to take it on. And, and I'm not a uh, personnel expert. There are people on here that are in terms of the, the folks that say I'm not participating in that type of program. There's no space for that in this business any longer. But there is a space for FTOs and preceptors. And where I work, we have a probationary period. So you have to work with a senior provider your first six months to say, I want you to tell me if you think something's not right here. I want you to tell me if you think this patient's not a candidate for BiPAP, or I want you to tell me if you think my dose of medication's incorrect. And that's how you create that culture. And it's going to just take a generation of awkward, right? It's going to take a couple of years of uncomfortable conversations of this awkwardness of we're pair of providers, right? And and no matter what, no matter what your, your shoulder patch says, no matter who you are in the organization, you have the right to put the patient first. And putting the patient first is how we prevent errors and create a, a professional standard that's going to rocket this, this work forward. 
Bill, you look like you have something to say. I, I agree with Alex. I think the challenge is when you're on the scene with multi-jurisdictional personnel or you're part of a large, you know, when there's always you're the civilian paramedic in the fire department and you arrive on the ambulance and the fire crew is there and, you know, they have their hierarchical structure of, you know, a captain or a lieutenant and so forth and so on. And and I think it's it's really challenging to do that. And I think that also we operate, EMS personnel operate on scenes that are predominantly controlled by police and or predominantly controlled by fire. But we could still see something, whether it be patient related or even the safety of somewhere else. And there's a reluctance for new people in particular to speak up and point out something like, you know, that wire, that roof is about to collapse on you. It doesn't take anyone to yell out at someone. So there's I think there's some challenges there that that we have. And and I think we have what I'm more interested in is, is how we solve this or begin to create this. And this is where I'll be interested with Katie is how do we get this into people when they start within the uh, in class? Katie, I think you've been called upon. Mike and too, I'd like to hear from you guys are a different perspective. So Katie, you're teaching a paramedic level and and Mike, you're teaching EMT level, correct? Got that right, great. Well, I just, I like, yeah, Alex and Bill have hit all of the like problems on the head. Um, I just, to me, the first thing I think of is intubation is also really difficult and we would never expect a new grad to go out in the field and do it for the first time ever in a field setting. So we train it and we practice it and we have all sorts of accrediting bodies that make us count how many times we practice it and document that our people are competent in that. But I think what we're talking about here is actually a skill that's significantly more important. Speaking up for patient safety has got to be a core skill for all of our providers at any level. And how can we expect that this happens if we don't train it, if we don't practice it, if we don't sim it? And I think what people forget is that we actually are simming the wrong thing to do all the time because in their head, they're like, oh, simulation is the simulation day where we go with the fancy mannequins and we set it all up. But you know what, when we're in lab and we're practicing, you just pretend to be a dumb EMT partner who knows nothing and just don't say anything because we need to practice like we're going to test and they're going to test by themselves and I don't want you helping them. And that's actually simulating, not speaking up, it's simulating the wrong thing. So that I'm just like in my head screaming, of course, I'm like, yes, but we do this all the time. We do it wrong. So it's like, yeah, scaffolding, make sure we're not scaffolding the wrong direction. So. Mike, what do you think? Um, when I, I think all this is great. When I read this study the first time, I wrote on the top of it, who are you more likely to speak up for yourself or the patient? I think if you draw that, so, so as I think about, okay, how do we implement this into education? I think, well, people are probably more likely to speak up if there's a patient risk, right? I'm probably a little bit more willing, especially in a high um, a high stress organization like this, to put myself in danger than I am my patient. So how can we bring a simulation, as Katie's talking about, into the education realm and say, okay, you've got a patient safety error, medication errors, what comes to my mind, because we simulate, or I don't know that it's necessarily simulation, but we do a discrete skill practice, at least of where we go through a medication check, where we go through our six rights, they hand it to their partner, they say, this is what the drug 
drug is. This is why I want to give it. These are the indications. These are the contraindications. And within about 90 seconds, they do a med check. We actually have that scripted. Our students have to follow a specific script with their partner. I'm thinking we should probably mix it up a little bit now and have somebody give a wrong dose, give a wrong indication, or have a patient with a contraindication and see if the partner picks it up, as opposed to just looking at it saying, yeah, this looks good. Here you go, hand it back. Um, I, I'm wondering if there's actually an opportunity there. Uh, to me, that's where you start is there's a patient safety concern. And then you could build into, there's actually a scene safety concern. So my life is in danger. My partner's life is in danger. I just thinking through it in my head, it would seem like somebody would be more likely to speak up for a patient safety. And that's where I can easily implement it into the classroom more easily. Kim, did you have something? I was just going to say that when we did that patient's uh, the, um, safety and paramedic program survey years ago, and we asked, what were what are your goals for simulation? Safety was the last one. And so I think that was sort of a wake-up call for people. I think, Alex, if you're still on, you had a great example, actually, before we um, started the webinar about how you embed um, some things into your sims. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to be quick here. But uh, yeah, we have forced medication errors in all of our simulations for new hires. We know what our medication errors are. I can say with confidence that ketamine is one of them, not because of, of crew, but because there's like four different doses in our guidelines and which dose is it that I'm going to use. Uh, so we generally use that one. Like this, you will encounter this, right? Um, and you as a new grad understand the protocols way better than your partner does because we just tested the heck out of you on them. So it's okay to speak up and say, listen, I've, I've got confidence here. You should, I think people should consider adding a medication, a known medication error into some of their simulations. I think it's important. I, I want to bring up what, what happened. You know, we've seen a lot of EMS in the news lately, and we had a recent case where uh, a patient died and there's been a lot of activity on social media about it um, and a lot of, you know, comments about about the crew and and how long has this behavior been going on and attitudes and things like that. And that didn't have anything to do with the medication error. So we, we do have a tendency to focus on a really important thing, which is medication administration. But what about, you know, they mentioned culture and 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 we've heard culture a couple of times here. You know, how can we and and I think you were getting at this a little bit, Katie and and Kim, building it into simulate and, and Mike even building it into simulation. Um, how do we do it even at the educator level when we're watching for things without it having to be a checkbox at the bottom. Here's the safety checkbox. Maybe yeah. something comes up just in the natural course of a simulation, like the way that they're they're talking to a patient, the way that, you know, and, and, and some of that is very nuanced, right? So, you know, when we get, um, you know, patients who have our chronic inebriates or, you know, how how are we how are we evaluating that the student's not going to go out there and miss something, you know, very vital or at least treat people like a human being, right? So yeah. what's... Megan, I was like, I was wanting to say that everyone's talking about these great examples, but we just, we're kind of almost skirting over. We have to debrief this. And they mentioned this in the research article. And I think what you're getting at is how do we know? We have to ask why. It's not even as important that they did the right thing. What's important is that we know that they have the right framework of thinking that got them there. And they didn't like 
accidentally magic into it, right? Or that they didn't speak up. Um, I know we had, we lost Alex, but they didn't speak up because they were being tested and they knew that they had to, and they felt safe in that environment as a new hire, but they're never going to speak up in the field because they know that captain who is, they have to work with every day for 48 hours of time, you know, is going to be pissed off at them if they mess that they speak up. So I think the why and making sure that we're practicing, but we're instilling in them the critical thinking is going to be really key. I love that they mentioned health equity in here um, several times. Um, health equity is tied into it. It's not a separate and distinct thing. It is wrapped up as part of a, a baseline expectation that you understand that there are cultural inequities and that you, you know, and, and that this came up as in a point of advocacy, not only for patients, but, but for self. So um, I, th yeah, that, that, uh, stood out to me, especially given our recent, um, discussions on, on equity. Yeah. And they but, even mentioned positions of power, right. Mm -hmm. And like the inequity of power of being a new grad, but even just think about the inequity of power of being a patient or a patient in police custody because of a drug or substance use problem, right? Like mm -hmm. that power dynamic, we really need to be teaching people about. One of the things I was going to say was it's, um, it's sort of on the flip side is when you're uh, the national registry rolled out that um, integrated out of hospital scenario and they built it in so that the professional partner could go ahead and cue the participant, the, the person, the candidate who's being tested, if they were going to do the wrong thing, if they were going to do something unsafe then they had sort of this three-step process kind of crew resource management where they're going to cue them that, oh, is this really the right thing to do? And so kind of building that culture within our EMS community, I think that that was a step toward that. But then just like you have sort of major variations between how people treat cardiac arrest, you're going to have major cultural variations within mm -hmm. agencies. So I don't know how you fix that. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to be like the, the negative one here too, but the, the, these are one-off solutions, right? We can, we can build it into simulation. We can add it into the integrated out of hospital scenario. They're kind of one-off solutions. And what we're talking about is an, and I'm, I'm a little bit negative now too, because I have a, a cohort of students that are about, about to enter the clinical arena in their second semester while they come back, they do this classroom lab in clinical and, and after that, the field. And I've, I've, you watch it happen. I've watched it happen where you have students that are not just good at practice and, and safe with medication administration, whatever, but they, they actually have the right attitude toward healthcare. They have a kind of a broad uh, view of what affects a patient's health, not just the biological perspective, but the social and environmental. And then they get sort of absorbed by the Borg, <laughs> the culture, and and I, you know, come, they return to something and I see or hear as they're trying to, you know, help out maybe one day uh, the, the culture come out and it's, it's, um, I don't know, it's deflating. So I'm curious how people feel about that. If you have them do a journal, you will see the culture come out. You know, when they journal after clinical experiences and they talk about things that happen or how they didn't feel things were right. Um, and then it's an opportunity on the back end to talk about that culture and talk about how could how could you have intervened there? I mean, I think there's so many uses. For, I'm a big person on reflection, on learning anyway, but 
But I think that this is one of the areas where you can sort of say that doesn't sound like it was right. You were right in thinking that was wrong. You know, you don't want people to sort of have that normalization of deviance where they think, well, everybody acts this way. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's just the way you are in EMS. Yeah. I do. I think it's interesting. I'd be wondering what other people have to think on it. I feel like the generation coming through our programs right now, at least the 18 to 25 year old demographic is probably more poised to speak up than any of the generation, certainly more than I would have spoken up in the healthcare setting. I feel the culture around us right now is very poised on that, especially as we continue to have more EDI conversations and start to recognize in our own system where we've got our and where we've got our biases and how we can improve. So I, I'm a I'm a little bit hopeful as I read this study that the people that I'm seeing in the classroom are are much more likely to speak up, stand up for their patient and stand up for themselves because they've been empowered to do that. Historically, at least in, in their you know young lives and their young development, more so than I'm thinking if I'm sitting in a classroom, and I, and I think it's a little bit specific to some patient pop or some student populations too. Um, I'm I'm thinking through the the people that were coming to our class that have been in the hierarchy already are a lot less likely to speak up. So it's sort of like we've broken them not to do it. Um, whereas the students that are coming up right now, just, I feel like they're much more empowered to speak up for a patient or for themselves um, than historically. Bill? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of excellent comments here, but I do think that we need to, the, it's not just the patient that we, you know, the patient is certainly in the center of the circle and we should be willing to do things, but it's how do we strengthen the students so they feel they can comment about anything they see that's unsafe and act on it. That becomes a really big challenge. And, and I do think hierarchy is a big thing because I even think if you're in the hospital and you see something wrong, you need to, you need to step up. And I have to tell you very early, I mean, really early in my career, we were, we transported a patient to a mental health facility and the patient, uh, you know, got really, belligerent and started acting out and all these orderlies descended upon him back when orderlies were the pro the term that was used and this one orderly literally put his foot on this guy's neck to get him under control and my partner immediately responded you know to protect the patient and then led to all sorts of stuff but it was a great example I saw of someone who said hey I don't care who you work for this is not right what you did there and acted. And I just, I think it's very hard for new people to get that. You know, I'm at the point that if I'm working in my career, I don't really care. You know, I'll say what I think is wrong or I'll correct something regardless of who the so person true. is that's standing in front of me. But how do we build that? And I want them to build it to do it appropriately. I may not be the most appropriate person at this point in my life, but you want them to do it appropriately and effectively. That might get to that quality supervision piece here under scaffolding as well, because if you are seeing that, if you're new and you're seeing someone speak up on behalf of the patient like that, um, you're probably much more likely to. Katie, do you have something to add? Yeah, well, we're talking about quality supervision, and I'm just thinking too, um, and I'm, I'm stealing this from Dr. Maya Dorsett, who is way smarter and better at this than I am, but she talks a lot about being vulnerable and mm -hmm. uh, as a supervisor and as a like person higher up in the chain, if you think about like your EMS physician, like probably the highest up right in our little chain of command here. Um, but she is open about the mistakes that she's made and she's open about when she makes mistakes. And that allows people to call her out 
and because of the way that she received that. So I think we have to be really careful too about how we are modeling that, that, that interaction. So for me as an instructor, I try really hard to, um, in education, make sure that my students know that I'm training them to be my colleague and that I'm not above them. I'm an EMS person who's just in a different journey in my education and career path than they are, but I want them to get to where I'm at. So they don't, you know, I don't tell them, oh, whatever I say is golden. Like they need to know that if I'm saying something wrong, if another instructor is saying something wrong or different even, and they're not sure which one it is, they need to talk to us about it. And it's not throwing someone under the bus for saying it. It's a culture of being open. Everyone can make mistakes. Everyone can have a different viewpoint. Let's all get on the same page and make sure we're doing the best for the patient. Yeah. Um, and if you ever did anything with me and Sim, or if you've been to any of Michael Caduce's classrooms, you'll see that we have this basic assumption that we stole from Harvard uh, about that everyone's here, everyone's smart, everyone's intelligible, everybody's mm -hmm. capable. We're all here to do the best for patients. I'm not saying it exactly right. Um, but and everyone kind of like brings something to the table too. Everyone brings something. Everyone has something to offer. So I think that's really important. I do want to um, bring Mike back too, because I think you made a point earlier that's really uh, that I'm curious about. I want to tease it apart a little bit, and that was that that you're finding that your students are more um, armed with or or aware of whether that's from social media or each other or being more just more aware of the the many nuances of, you know, safety and, and culture and, and, um, and advocacy and patient advocacy. And what I'm wondering about that too, is are we, why do you think that is our, are, 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 um, sometimes it was, you know, who's being, who's attracted to this field. And then, you know, not everybody, some of you may have programs where, uh, you know, you can't find enough people to fill your class. And then, there are those of us in the urban setting, you know, where we have to have selection process. And I know we've altered our selection process to try and find people who are more patient advocates. And, um, you know, so that's, that's something I'm, I'm curious if that is a piece of it. Are people more selective about who is coming in or, or is it just a generational thing? And actually, Bill, maybe you can comment because you're always talking about generational things too. But Mike, what do you think? Uh, I think good question. I think probably, um, and I, I apologize, I was looking for that simulation oath, Katie, I know you probably have it more handy than I do um, to put in the chat for everybody, because you're right, putting it, putting on the wall is a great reference tool to when you reference your debriefs, you can reference back to that and having it on the wall is really helpful. Um, I think it's probably a little bit of both, Megan. Um, we don't have a select, we don't have entrance criteria, we don't have, we don't make students do anything as long as you can enroll and the class is open, you can have a seat in the class. So I would say I see it generation. Generationally, uh, and I think of some of the more recent opportunities for younger folks, uh, uh, yeah, for anyone to get involved in, in civic um, organizations and civic um, like groups. We see some of the different protest walks and things like that um, recently really being an opportunity. And if you look at the crowds, you see a lot more young people. So being empowered to take those actions and to stand up for when they see injustice and something that doesn't match with what they think the world should be. I think there's a lot more willingness to step up. I will say I like this is one of the reasons I like EMT education so much is we haven't jaded people from the healthcare mm -hmm. system yet. Um, EMTs are just they want to help people. They truly have a sense. And, and I don't want to break their hearts and be like, well, the patient probably would have survived whether you took them to the hospital or they drove themselves to the hospital. But you you want to keep that sort of glow in their eye, that sense of no, I am making a difference here. I can make a difference. Um, 
it's sort of sad that the healthcare system breaks you of that. Um, but I don't see that as often in paramedic students as I do in EMT students who still want to help people. So I, mm. I, I think there is something to the generation of empowerment. It, we probably see it in every 18 to 24 year old demographic. And as people age, they feel like they have less of the empowerment and less of the ability to make a difference. But I um, there's just something that seems like the current generation is a lot more likely to speak up for people who are disadvantaged um, than than historically. And they mention that in the study. They mention other studies that have shown that uh, the lo the longer the clinical experience, the less likely you are to speak up, which I thought was interesting. It goes counter to what Bill and I were saying was, you know, which is as you get older, you're like, I don't care anymore. I'm going to say something. You know, I don't care about my, you know, reputation or people thinking I'm incompetent or whatever. Um, and, and more likely to talk about errors that you have to Katie's point, you know, not just, um, you know, putting yourself out there and talking about your own past mistakes um, as a message to the students that, you know, this can happen if you don't do a full assessment or if you, you know, something like that. It's what makes me think we need to continue having this type of education in our initial education programs. And, and whether it's EMT as the entry into EMS or CR, um, CNAs into the nursing profession, um, all of the entry-level training programs really should take advantage of what we have, the characteristics we have in our population, which is they have a willingness to stand up for patients and for themselves and build that in. And then maybe we won't get this. Okay. The longer they've been here, the less likely they are to stand up for people because we instilled that value. And then we scaffolded it. The study uses scaffolding. So, you know, we scaffolded it in them early and then we kept it in them because we supported it within the organization. Mm -hmm. Bill? Yeah, I, I think that if you have senior people, whether they be the FTOs, whoever it is, that are willing to, in a not, I, I don't like the old war story case, but they make sure they apply it appropriately about something that's happened. And, and something that drove me when I was a paramedic program director was, is I wanted the students to have a better educational experience than I did going through my EMS programs over time, because when I started, things were, you, shoestring is an understatement, you know, I mean, there was no field internship at all with my first, you know, uh, ALS level program, because there was no place to go get a field internship on, you know, there was one practicing provider, and he could not take all the students, you know, mm -hmm. just was not impossible. So I know that my mantra was, is I'm going to try to create either through actual experience within hospital or the field or the classroom, that I expose you to everything that's expected of you in the field to minimize, you know, the shock value that it, it would have for them. But again, I've made so many mistakes, I have no problem telling them. And I, I think if you can think of one, I probably have done it and hopefully not more than twice. Kim. Mike said something about, you know, you know, should we be start, we should be starting with this at EMT. And I think even before, you know, we had even in our ride along instructions for, you know, high school students or other people that were coming to ride along at our agency, there was a statement that said, if you see something that, that seems to be unsafe, it's your job to say something to someone. So I think that those expectations need to be laid out in your clinical orientations and in, in everything, you know, like Katie said, you know, when you make a mistake, don't be defensive about it in class. If somebody says they, you, they think you're wrong, then say, well, maybe, maybe I am, let's look that up because 
I, you know, I'm often wrong, so let's look it up. And then that sort of creates that vulnerability that uh, people know that you're welcome to suggest that somebody might be wrong or something might be unsafe. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it's still frustrating though, as a, as an instructor, sometimes I do have another instructor who, who's very helpful with this. He really talks about this a lot. And that is he taught, he brings it out before they go to clinicals. You are going to see, I, we are telling you to wipe ports before and to, you know, clean sites. And we're telling you to do it this way. You are going to see people not do this. That is not good practice. You have to develop. So, so he really brings it out uh, in them, which I really appreciate. Um, because it's not just me saying it, it's now we have like, and, and he's, a, you know, got a, a position where of respect, I think, um, with the students too. I think that matters. Uh, one thing, uh, go ahead, Kim. I was just going to say, I'm going to read you a quick quote from that qualitative study I did that sort of speaks to the next part of the study, the barriers to why people don't speak up. And this student who had just been a graduate working for about eight months said, my partner had been a paramedic for a long time and had what many people would consider to be outdated medical philosophies. I disagreed with the decision made by my partner. And when I asked him discreetly if we would want to reconsider his decision, he got agitated and embarrassed that I asked, questioned his decision. He then told the patient that I didn't know what I was talking about because Ooh. I was new. Yeah. So, how likely is that person going to be to speak up again? again you know? <laughs> exactly. And they did talk about that. When are you likely? When are you not likely? And, you know, that can feed into this transition impact. I was really worried about the transition piece, that theme, transition impact, which was, um, you know, and actually this is the theory. So let me go back. The transition impact where it says, um, you know, transition shock when they're going into the workforce and burnout, uh, because even if you have all of the, you know, advocacy is going to drive me to speak up and, and, and scaffolding, how many of those will, you know, how many can offset, how many of the positive influences can offset the negatives, um, you know, that that's, and, and keep them from burning out that, and that transition reality. I can, I think that feeds into what um, Alex was talking about, about how important it is when you pick up new grads. Cause we've talked about that on this um, before on this podcast before, which is we don't really have standards for, for new grad programs. Uh, and in nursing, when you get hired, you leave nursing school truly baseline and you get hired and you automatically go into a new grad program. And then you're a new grad for a long time. I mean, you and before you can get hired somewhere else and not have to do yet another new grad program at that place. So um, it's there's so much more detail there than there is in our field. And I think that's a, another piece. I do wanna throw something out there though, before we look at this program theory that they developed based upon this. Um, what about educators themselves? I think you could look at that table before and ask, you know, what about educators speaking up about the education that's going on? Um, did any of you think of that? I was thinking of that as I was going along. I was thinking, well, let's look at, you know, educate practices among our educators. And as Bill's always says, EMS education is done on the cheap. And so sometimes we're bringing people in. And as he said, you'll have people coming in giving war stories, or maybe they're not, they're, you know, poo-pooing certain practices or whatever. 
being able to screen and train educators in this, it, it, it would be be interesting to do the same exact focus group kind of question, speaking out about educational practices with students and what educators say to students. So I'm curious whether anybody thought of of that, Katie, I thought so in, in yeah. simulation, especially. I mean, well, this um, it's, it's a concerted effort. We actually saw this in our last paramedic cohort where they were coming through and they were getting ready to go to field and they were doing testing and they were, they were watching each other make mistakes. And just, we paused and we're like, what, like, why are you doing that? I know that, you know, that's wrong. Oh, well, he's the team leader and it's his turn to be evaluated. And I'm like, but why are you practicing giving the wrong dose of a medication? Or why are you like, you know, that this is wrong. Why are you like, I see you holding the oxygen. You're standing there holding it. You want to put it on the patient, but you're not speaking up. And it was because they're like, well, this is how, you know, we know that we're being trained. And I'm like, uh, so now our whole thing is we've changed the entire way we're testing and all of the instructors are on board and they're allowed to talk about it. But I said, look, I want them to be ready for day one internship. And we're only going to train towards that. Mm -hmm. And so if, they're, if you see them standing there and they're not speaking up, I want you to pause, stop and ask why. So we can literally find the barriers, figure out what they are and then train them away. So yeah, that's our goal. Yeah. It, it really is. It's a, it's a mentoring of new instructors, Kim. We, we tried to do that in, in our house where, you know, we would, we would do these sessions for continuing education that we would repeat, like, 12 times in a row. So we wanted to make sure that we got it right. So we would do like a dress rehearsal, dry run, and then just give peer feedback about it. We brought in some new educators who were like, totally like, you're just going to rip it apart. You know, people, they were so threatened by it because they had just never had that experience before. Mm -hmm. And they thought it was about criticizing them rather than making it better. There was a really good issue of the journal educational leadership which is going to blur out here yeah um there was an issue that was related to kind of facilitation giving feedback that sort of thing and i talked about a little bit about giving peer feedback um, to other educators and how some people feel really threatened by it and and how you can kind of go about it so that people don't feel so threatened but it, it's a hard thing and you know uh, some people just have a hard time getting feedback. Mm -hmm. um, it makes me think, I know we had team leader, team member skill sheets, and I feel like skill sheets is a bad word right now in EMS education, um, but it does bring back the value of that team member skill sheet. You witnessed something go wrong. You didn't say anything. You failed as a team member. You really didn't step up and acknowledge when there was something that was wrong and you should have. I appreciate the NAMT doing this in some of their classes. They've gone away from sort of team leader skill sheets and moved on to just a general overall competency. Did you perform well under pressure? And it makes me think we probably need to have some involvement on the continuing education side in the same aspect of you have to have a responsibility as a team member to step up when something's wrong. Yeah. And I'm wondering if NEMC courses, instructor courses too, should incorporate this same thing at the instructor level. What if you see an instructor um, and not teaching a wrong thing? That's, that's a, that's a, I'm talking about something a little bit more, you know, cultural or uh, behavioral or encouraging a certain practice that, you know, isn't good patient care. <laughs> or even just Sometimes you see them, they're like, this is the way, you know, like they're, I use the Mandalorian reference, but like, you must not remove your helmet ever under no circumstances. Yeah. And there's another way to do it. Right. Like, 
um, I, I'm just thinking we are on Tuesday, we're doing innovation. And one of the instructors is like, no, you don't use a bougie unless you can't see it. And I'm like, wait, no, they can like, they're, it's totally acceptable yeah. for them to be in this practice. And so and here's the study routine use of the bougie. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but we have so much of like, this is the way and fire service and EMS and you must hold these fine until also our students come in at least the paramedic students and the value of experience is like way over anything else so if someone who they work with is telling them i've been out here 20 years and i've seen this and it's a complete myth that's demonstrated in the research over and over again they are still more likely to say, well, you know, my partner's got, you know, 20 and he's a great guy or, you know, and it's like, wow, that's really interesting. So, so how do I do that without, you know, taking away the, the importance of the, the partner and, and their experience, which is important, uh, but, but still educate. It's interesting. So, Okay, we're, we're getting close, but I want to just um, put this up. This is the theory. They developed an initial program theory. So in an exploratory study, they wanted to develop the theory that they can then develop a wider study based upon. And guess what? So can you. So if Allied Health uh, new grads do any of these things, experience, quality, supervision, positive team culture, orientation, have a reduced workload, a uh, number of strategies, which is the one I'm really interested in, um, these speaking up strategies, they will feel empowered and confident, committed to support their role as advocates, um, especially relationship to patient safety and cultural equity, and then be committed to the outcomes of the team and their own well-being to complete um, you know, the following uh, actions. They'll feel confident to speak up for the patient safety and equity and speak up for themselves and their teams. So that's their the whole if-then theory um, and the results. So this is like a setup for some good basic, you know, translational science that if we, you know, to see if we could get these kinds of effects implementing certain actions, but I think we're, we're not there yet. I think we're at the beginning, but if this would be, a, there's a great framework. I thought this study provided a great framework for the next step. And so their, their practice points were that speaking up is a critical skill for new grads, uh, but there's little published research on that. So there you go. Education research is out there. People thinking of dissertation topics and everything. Here it is. And remember, PCRF, we have associates and, and board members who are um, you know, mentors who can help if you, if you have any questions. And then patient safety, self and team advocacy, um, activate speaking up in allied health new grads. So those should be probably really important in our education programs. Uh, and then supervision. And I think quality supervision was what they mentioned in their enable speaking up behavior, which I thought was, I'm not in the, in the, um, the new grad uh, training business or environment business, but that supervision, I think a lot of people are thinking about that now, um, you know, the quality supervision it, it, with all the new people out there. So any final thoughts here? My only final thought here is that I think these skills are harder than being a team leader. It is harder to speak up eloquently, competently in front of patient family, patients, other people without having, I don't want to say negative, but like a less than optimal outcome. And if we don't recognize that and recognize that hard skills need practice, instruction, and training, and continued 
debriefing and like re uh, looking back at it, we're never going to get better. I couldn't agree more. And I, and I feel like it's like any other skill. If you don't practice it, you won't do it well. So you could even, without even doing full sims, you could do small role plays and give them the words to say to both bring it to somebody's attention that there's an unsafe situation and diffuse the potential feelings that somebody might have then about that. Um, I'm going to give Bill Tune the final word because he's much more um, well-spoken than I am. I, whenever you bring something new to me, I'm always like, okay, how am I going to fit this in? I've got uh, an N amount of time. How do I, what do, I'm going to have to take something away. And I, I think through, okay, what's more important, some error recognition and supporting people speaking up for patients or the CAD board or one more rotation of putting the oxygen cylinder together. If I had to prioritize, I would say recognizing patient safety or personal safety issues in the lab, in the classroom is, is much more important than some of those other skills that we require 10 or 15 or 20 of. So um, this is a pretty easy one for me to say, yeah, we can make room for this in our curriculum. And I want to thank all my fellow panelists and the people who did this research. I'm very pleased to see it. I really think that maybe one of the things that would help with this is that we look at how do we take the current providers out there and get them to understand where we want to create this better environment. So they're willing to help new grads speak up, but they themselves speak up. Because again, I think in certain hierarchical organizations, they are unwilling to, and, and bad things happen in those situations. And I think we see more examples every day uh, happening uh, all the time and in the news and, and you know the chance for bad outcomes, not only for the patient, but for those individuals and their livelihoods and all the people that are negatively impacted. So it requires a change in our culture and changing culture is very challenging. Megan, we're not hearing you. Unmute. Sorry about that. <laughs> I have two mute buttons, so I just hit my second one. Thank you all. The, the great way to end. Thank you for, for joining us, and thank you to the researchers for providing us with the topic for discussion this month. Remember that we will be back on Friday, February 24th for the Education Research Journal Club at 10 a.m. Pacific, noon Central, but we have a clinical research uh, club a journal club, and that's Monday, February 13th. We also, you should visit the webpage at prehospitalcare.org because we have others that come up and other activities going on. So visit us and all of our archive journal clubs, of course, can be found on our YouTube channel. So don't forget to visit our YouTube channel. See you all next month. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at www.pcrfpodcasts.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website at www.prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsor, Limmer Education, providing education tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey.